11 laws to live by. And if you're brand new, I want to welcome you to Rocky Peak. And we always take just a minute to step back and let you know just what the series is about in case you are new. Um, we talk about 11 laws to live by. We're not talking about laws in a legalistic sense, like the laws of the land. So if you, if you break the law, you go to jail or you pay a fine. We're really talking more about like the laws of nature, that type of a law. And the laws of nature just simply tell you how life works. So the law of gravity, what goes up must come down. The law of motion, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. These are just laws that say this is how life works in the physical realm. Well, in a similar way, the laws that we're talking about, these laws to live, uh, live by, are laws that explain how life works in the spiritual realm, in our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. And every week we're taking one of these laws, these are probably the most important things I've ever learned from the scripture, um, about how to live. And as we're starting this new journey together as a congregation, uh, we're unpacking them one, one a lot of time, one week at a time. Well, today we come to law number seven, which is the law of unity. Now, if you haven't done so already, inside of your bulletin is a white sheet that says message notes. So I encourage you to take that out so you can follow along. And let's get going. Uh, law, law number seven goes like this. That unity is a top priority. And we're going to be talking about this today, not, not just in general and not just in um, kind of philosophical terms, but we're going to be talking it specifically about the church at Rocky Peak, because I really believe this is one of the most important laws for us at this juncture of, uh, of our history. Um, Jesus made it very clear um, in his teaching that unity was one of his top priorities for his uh, followers. For example, in John chapter 17, um, which we, got, we know is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, this was the prayer he prayed right before he was arrested um, on the final night. And I've got a lot of echo up here, guys. If you could, I don't know if you could help me out with that. Um, but anyway, it's there on your note sheet. And the whole chapter is just this prayer right before he's arrested. And you can see what was on his heart. He said, my prayer is that, they, um, that all of them, that's his followers, might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And catch this, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I want you to catch that. Jesus said that the unity of his followers would be the telltale sign, the proof to the world that these Christians, uh, that, that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. In a world that can't get along, Jesus said his community would get along with one another, and by that, the world would know that, that he really was who he claimed to be. Now, you don't have to be much of a student of church life or uh, church history to know that we have failed miserably at that, haven't we? That uh, the first thing you, 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 know, you find out when you're a Christian is that it's so great to be a part of the family of God. And the second thing is the family doesn't always get along so well. And so, um, but Jesus said this was like a top priority for us. Um, when we talk about unity though, we're not saying that unity means uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're gonna agree on everything. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're not gonna have conflict because we will. But it means that as his followers, we learn how to do conflict differently and we learn how, what to fight about and what not to fight about. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Unity, What It Takes, Two Lessons We Have to Learn. Um, and we're gonna start off with a passage that'll be our foundational passage today. It's in the book of Ephesians. So it's in the New Testament, chapter four. If you turn there. We'll start at verse one. Now, Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, 
and so he refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. In verse one, it says, um, <clears throat> as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now you might wanna underline that word worthy. Interesting word because often in Paul's writings, when he talks about living a worthy life, it refers to getting along with one another, interestingly enough, yeah, if you can trace this out. But he says, live a life worthy of the Lord, and then verse two, he says, we're to be completely humble and gentle, we're to be patient, and then underline this next phrase, we're to be bearing with one another in love. We'll come back to that later in the message, but I wanna point it out now, bearing with one another. And then look what he says in verse three, that we need to make every effort, in other words, make it a top priority to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I want you to catch that. He says this is a top priority for us as followers were to make every effort to preserve or to guard or to keep the unity in a church like this. It's to be a top priority. And notice it's not gonna be easy. He says you're gonna have to make every effort to do it. Not gonna come naturally. And then skip down to verse 32, the end of the chapter. He says, we're to be kind and compassionate to one another, and then underline this, forgiving each other as Christ, as in Christ, God forgave you. And so he starts the chapter talking about unity and making every effort. He ends the chapter by talking about forgiveness. And this is just a reality. We'll talk about this later on, that if we're going to build a unified body here, forgiveness has to be not an exceptional act, it has to be a normal way of life for us here at Rocky Peak. And so we'll be talking about that more. Now, there on your note sheet, two lessons we have to learn. Um, if we're serious about pursuing unity and making it a top priority and maintaining it, as the Apostle Paul just said we're to do, there's a couple lessons that we're gonna have to learn as a church. And the first one's longer. I'm gonna spend much more time on number one. Number two will just be very brief at the end, but I wanna at least introduce the concept. We'll, um, we'll talk about it more at some future date. But here's number one. The first lesson we're gonna have to learn is that we have to learn what's worth fighting over and what isn't. Okay, so, so lesson number one is a church here at Rocky Peak. What's worth fighting over? What are we gonna fight over? What aren't we gonna fight over? We have to decide that like right off the bat. Um, you know, there's some things like say in a marriage. There's some things in a marriage that are worth fighting over and then other things aren't. So you help me out here, okay? <laughs> Let's say that you move to a new area. <laughs> Just think of it as personal therapy. Um, <laughs> Let's say you, you move to a new area and, and you have a new home and you have to get new furniture and you disagree over the furniture. Now, would that be worth fighting over or not worth fighting over? Oh, it's not? Uh, okay, okay. Note to self. <laughs> okay, now let's say that you're, you're married to someone um, and, and you're getting really uncomfortable vibes, like they're getting too close to someone of the opposite sex. Would you say worth fighting over or not? Oh yeah, okay, good, good. Uh, how about this one? Um, you're married to someone and, and there, all the evidence is there that they have a chemical abuse problem of some kind. Would you say worth fighting over or? 
yeah, okay. How about if there's domestic violence going on in the home? You put up with that or is it worth fighting over? Not worth, (laughs) well, whatever. (laughs) Okay, let's move right on. (laughs) Um, Note to self, change notes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's worth making a big deal about. (laughs) Okay, so, so you get that concept. In a marriage, in any relationship, there's some things worth fighting over. There's other things not worth fighting over. Well, here's the deal. In the church of Jesus, in the family of God, there are some things worth fighting over. There are other things not worth fighting over. And a key to unity is deciding the difference, knowing the difference. Of course, that's a trick, too. How do you determine what's, you know, what to fight over and what not to? Well, fortunately, the New Testament gives us some great illustrations and some guidelines about what to fight over and what not to fight over. Um, there's, what does uh, teach us that there's some things that are, that are just like core issues. I'll be calling them today essentials of what we believe. And, and these are our core teachings. Don't turn the page yet, you'll go blind. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, so there are some things that are like, they're, they're essentials, and those would be things like, say for example, like, like who Jesus is, or who God is, or, or um, how we get saved, the way to God. Those are like essential things. And, then, and, and we can't compromise on those things. For example, they're on the front page of your note sheet. It says Amos 3.3. 3. Uh, Amos says, can two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Well, no. There, I mean, there's certain things that you have to agree on if you're gonna walk through life together on. You know, you just can't, you can't say you can believe whatever you want on everything and still have unity. There's certain things to be united you have to stand for, certain things you have to stand against. But on the other hand, there there are other issues in life that the Bible would say are non-essential issues, secondary issues. And and these areas, these are issues where the Bible is not so clear. These are issues where where good Christians who love God, who study God's word, have honest difference of opinion on. And the Bible would say on those kind of issues, you don't want to divide and fight over those kinds of issues. You're wasting your time and you're breaking up the unity. Um, so let's talk about, there's, there's a quote there in your note sheet, front page still, for you eager beavers. Um, it's a great quote by St. John Chrysostom, or Chrysostom if you like. But um, he was one of the great preachers in the early church, in the first, first few hundred years of the church. Very famous guy. And here was his statement. You may have seen this before. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. Okay? And I think it's a good rule to live by. In the essentials of the faith, we have unity. In non-essential, secondary issues, we would have diversity. We would allow freedom, difference of opinion. And then in all things, we always treat one another with charity or with love. So um, let's talk about like, how, how, to, how to figure that out. Like I said, the Bible gives some examples of essentials, things that you should divide over if you can't have unity, and there's some things that you shouldn't divide over. So let's give some illustrations, okay? So now you can turn the page. I want to start by giving, let's talk about unity and essentials. I want to give you two examples from the New Testament. One is a doctrinal issue, and when I use the word doctrinal, all I mean is the Bible says there are certain truths about who God is, who we are, our relationship. And that's, those are, we call those doctrines, you know, the, what, what the Bible teaches. Um, and then there are other areas um, 
so, so I'm gonna give one, one example that's a doctrinal type issue, and then another example that is a moral type issue. Because the Bible's very clear that there's certain moral codes that we're to hold to, and that we're to divide over even. They're worth fighting over. And so let's give an example of each one. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter one and verse six. We'll start with a doctrinal example. And this one has to do with how does a person get right with God? How does a person know God? How does a person go to heaven? How are they saved? And uh, Paul was writing to this church in Galatia and they were a new church. They'd come to Christ, um, but then they had some false teachers come into their midst. And these false teachers said, you know, it's really not good enough just to trust in Jesus that really to be saved, you have to be circumcised and you have to obey all the Old Testament laws. Basically, you have to become Jewish and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And so, now, this is a core issue, isn't it? How is a person saved? That's an essential issue. If anyone comes into our church here or into our, uh, the Christian community at large and introduces a different way of salvation or that all paths lead to God, that sort of idea, you see, then, then that would be an essential that we should divide over. Let's see what Paul says. In verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now underline that, a different gospel. He's, he says, you're, you know, I can't believe you guys are buying into a different gospel. We're talking essential here, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying, here's a good word to underline, to pervert the gospel of Christ. So if someone tries to pervert the gospel of Christ, what do we do, we just get along with them? We just hang in there together? We say, well, we all agree to disagree? No, look what Paul says in verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. In other words, let him go to hell. So this doesn't sound like agree to disagree, does it? <laughs> no, 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 no. This is time to divide. If someone comes in and betrays the essence of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, you don't put up with that. You divide over that issue. Okay, you can't, can't deal with that. Now let's give me another example. That's a doctrinal example. Let me give you a different one, a moral example. Let's turn to the left of 1 Corinthians chapter five. Now the situation here is that um, there's, there's a, a problem with blatant sexual sin. Now, now I'm kind of new here at Rocky Peak, so let me define sexual sin, all right? Sexual sin, according to the Bible, is when people have sex um, and they're not a man and a woman who are married to each other, okay? So, so anything outside of man and woman committed to life in marriage, having sex is off limits, okay, so that, that's, my, that's the biblical definition, all right? So they, they, were, they were involved in a blatant sexual sin. In their particular case, they had a man in their congregation who was having sex with his stepmother. And uh, the church was just being very sophisticated about this. And they, they kind of were saying, like, well, you know, who are we to judge? And, and uh, you know, well, you know, I mean, that's not exactly what I'm into, but okay, and we have freedom in Christ. And, and so they were kind of doing this sort of a dance. And the Apostle Paul says, what are you thinking? He says, don't you understand that when you have blatant sin going on a congregation 
and you don't deal with it, that sin will spread. And pretty soon you'll have a lot of sexual sin going on in your body. You, you don't mess around with sexual sin. You challenge, you confront, you help a person get back on track. If they refuse to get back on track, you divide over that issue. You say, this is something we, we cannot, you have to make a choice. You're either in with us or you're out. It's your choice, but, but you can't just have your foot in both worlds. You can't be in the world and in the body. And it's not just with sexual sin. He lists several other examples of very clear, high-handed sin. So let's see what he says about this. 5.9. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul had written them a letter previously about don't hang out with sexually immoral people. But he said not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. They had got the letter and they thought he meant don't ever hang out with anyone doing immoral things. He said, no, no, I'm just talking about Christians, not non-Christians. Um, he said, uh, uh, not people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. I mean, you couldn't go to work. You know, it's like, couldn't work anymore. And so, um, and, and how are we gonna influence non-believers if we're not hanging out with non-believers, right? So he's not talking about that. Sorry, Madonna's bothering me here. Um, but, but what he says is, if someone claims to be a believer, so he goes on, but now I'm clarifying, I'm writing in verse 11, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Okay, that's very important. So someone who's a self-identified Christian. You know, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yes, I am. You born again, uh, you bet. You saved? Yep, absolutely. So it's a self-identified Christian. He says if anyone self-identifies as a brother, but is, and then living in blatant sin, and he gives several examples, sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, there's a good one, we don't really do church discipline on enough, gossip. Someone who is, is kind of the church gossip, everyone knows it. What do most churches do? Oh, well, you know, Betty. Paul says, no, 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 no. No, we need to go to Betty, and we can talk to Betty, and say, Betty, you're slandering people, and this is causing disunity in the body. It's tearing the body apart, and we need you to change. And if Betty says, Hey, who are you? You have no right to tell me what to do. We say, Betty, it's time for you not to be a part of this body until you're ready to change, you see? A drunkard, we call him a partier, or a swindler, kind of a rip-off artist. With such a man, do not even what? Eat. Now, can you get much clearer about that? The Apostle Paul says that if someone is living in blatant sin and unwilling to change or repent, it's not something they're struggling with, yeah, I'm wrong, and they're trying to get better. This is someone who's saying, no, I'm gonna do it. This is what I've chosen to do. You have no right to tell me. The Apostle Paul says you gotta draw a line in the sand. Now, look what he says in verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The non-Christian world, it's not, no. see, here's, as, as a church, we do this all wrong. We got all upset with the outside world, <laughs> and we pick it against them, <laughs> and we allow sin to go on in our midst and just wink at it. It's exactly the opposite. We're not supposed to hold the world accountable. They're the world. You know, they're not followers of Jesus yet. Why are we holding them to our standards, you see? But we're to hold each other in the family to family standards, 
What business it is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So God will judge those outside, and then he quotes the Old Testament, expel the wicked man from among you. This guy who's having sex with his stepmother, he says he's gotta go. It's not okay. Now if he repents, which he later does, we find out in 2 Corinthians, Paul says restore him now with love. You see? But it's just as long as someone is high-handed in sin, refuses to change, Paul says divide over that. So there are certain things worth fighting over, worth dividing over, core doctrinal truths about who Jesus is and who God is and how we're saved. And there are things, moral issues, key moral issues. The Bible is very clear about. We are not to tolerate that. We have to uh, discipline each other in that, okay? So there are things like that, and we cannot be united as a church, if we're not willing to take a stand for what is right, whether it's politically correct, whether it's, whether it's popular or not, is in our commitment at Rocky Peak needs to be a church that be faithful and stand under the authority of the word of God, and we will stand together and hold each other accountable in these areas. Now, we can't have unity without that. It's impossible. But on the other hand, we have to have, we have, to have diversity in the non-essentials in order to have unity. Now, the Apostle Paul gives a couple examples of this. Like, what would be an example in Paul's day of what diversity looks like in non-essentials? Well, he gives a couple examples that we'll look at in just a minute. But one example was dealing with food issues. Now, now this is not a hot button for us today. Um, We don't really usually have church splits over what to eat today. Um, Unless it's alcohol, then that might cause some problem. But, but in general, this is not a hot, but it was a hot issue for them. They had some people in the early church who felt like you needed to be a vegetarian. And, and you had some people that felt like, no, you can, you know, go, to, go and you know, get your hamburger. That's okay. You can do the meat thing. Okay. Now, why this was an issue, we're not really sure. We, we know part of the reason. We just don't know all the reason. What part of the reason was, was that the meat um, was, a lot of the meat in the meat market had been sacrificed to idols, had been used in pagan feasts. And so, um, because of that, some of the Christians felt like, uh, I don't know if I should buy this meat. You know, what if it's like idol meat? It, it might be like, uh, you know, offered to Zeus. Maybe it's polluted. I eat the meat, I get polluted. And so, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, spiritual cooties or something like that. And so, um, <laughs> and so um, there, some people, so you had this difference of opinion. Some Christians said, yeah, you can eat it. Others, no, you can't. And it was a really big issue. And we can't really understand this so much today, but you have to understand if you're from a Jewish background at that period of time, uh, people had lost their life because they were unwilling to eat, for example, pork under times of persecution. You know, pagans had come and said, if you don't eat this, we're gonna kill you. And they'd say, okay, kill me, I'm not eating the bacon. And so this was their history, it was a big issue, okay? Now, the second issue was involved days of worship. And there are some Christians that felt like there were certain special high holy days of worship. We should honor the Sabbath, for example. We need to worship on the Sabbath. Um, maybe there are certain feasts of the Old Testament, new moon festivals and so on, that we should honor. They're more sacred than other days. There were other Christians, probably from the Gentile background, that said, no, 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 no. It doesn't really matter. God's created all days. It doesn't matter which day we worship on. We don't have to honor certain days above. And it was a conflict. It was a big conflict. And so the Apostle Paul um, talked about these kinds of things. And he, he writes this long, uh, long letter 
our wrong chapter, in Romans chapter 14, and I put it there in your note sheet. And I did it there for a reason. We're not gonna actually turn in our Bibles, and the reason is I'm gonna skip around a little bit just to save some time, and I also put it in the New Living Translation just because it makes it a little bit clearer, and it's a very difficult passage to follow. But you can read it later on your own. Check out if I'm telling the truth, but just trust me for the moment. So we're gonna follow. So now Paul says, here's how you deal with, remember what we're talking about, secondary issues, non-essentials. We're not talking about essential issues, we're talking about secondary issues. So follow along. He says, um, we're to accept Christians who are weak in faith, and all he means by that are those who are not as mature yet. And catch this, don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Have you ever seen churches argue about things like this? <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. Another believer has a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Now those who think it's all right to eat anything must not look down on those who won't. And those who won't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. Now this is exactly the way the Christian community works. More, cons- uh, more liberal people in the Christian community always look down on people who are more conservative. I can't believe those poor fools, they still think they have to do this, right? And people who are more conservative, they always condemn those who are more liberal. I can't believe they would do that, see? This is just, this is just the way life works in the church. <laughs> Liberals always look down, conservatives always condemn. And so, he says, so who are you to condemn God's servants? I mean, they're responsible to the Lord, so let him tell them whether they're right or wrong. The Lord's power will help them do as they should. In the same way, here goes to the day example. Some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think that every day is alike. Each person should have a personal conviction about this matter. Now those who have a special day for worshiping the Lord, I mean, they're trying to honor him. And those who eat all kinds of food, they do so to honor the Lord. Now I just love that verse. Because it gives me great freedom when I go to a buffet of any kind. (laughs) Those who eat all kinds of food do so to honor the Lord. That's my life verse right there. Um, why? Because they're giving thanks to God before eating. Make sure you say thank you first. Now, and those who won't eat everything, they also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. So why do you condemn another Christian? Why do you look down on another Christian? Remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of Christ. Now look, this next, this next phrase is really important. That's why I, I, under, I put it in italics, okay? I, this is so important, we'll come back to it. I know, Paul says, and I'm, and I'm perfectly sure on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. Now I want you to catch that. Because what I'm not saying, when we talk about non-essentials, I'm not saying that all answers are equally right. This is very important. I, I'm not saying... See, Paul had an opinion. He said, based on the teaching of Jesus, we know this from Mark chapter seven, that it really is okay to eat any kind of food. So in the church at Rome, some people said you shouldn't eat it. Some people said you should eat it. One side was right. One side was wrong. But here's what I want you to catch. Paul is saying it's, it's, there's something more important than being right here. <laughs> it's getting along. He said, but if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another Christian is distressed by what you eat, then you're not acting in love if you eat. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. 
Now, if you serve Christ with this attitude, you'll please God, and other people will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony. Remember, this is our, our topic, is unity. Unity is the top priority, so we're gonna aim for harmony in the church, try to build each other up, and we're going to accept each other, catch this, as Christ accepted you. And then God will be glorified, okay? Now, turn the page. Three things I want you to notice from this passage. Three things I want you to notice. Number one, according to this passage, when we're dealing with non-essential issues, okay, be really clear on that. We're not dealing with core issues. Who's Jesus? How do we get to heaven? We're not dealing with that. We're dealing with secondary issues, non-essentials. The first principle is it's okay to disagree. We don't have to divide. In the body of Christ here at Rocky Peak, we don't have to agree on everything. It's okay. We don't have to divide. Paul did not say, okay, we're gonna have start a first church of the vegetarians over here. <laughs> and, and the first church of the meat eaters over here. That's how we're solving this problem. Because the meat eaters are right, the vegetarians are wrong, so we need to start a new denomination, okay? He didn't say that. He said it's okay to disagree. Now, they disagreed over these issues. I wanna get really roll up the sleeves here and get, get kind of real practical, and I wanna talk about issues the Christians disagree on today, okay? Because if we're gonna be here, uh, unified here, the Church of Rocky Peak, we have to decide right up front what are we gonna fight over and what aren't we, okay? So I'm gonna give you some examples. And some of these are just a flow out of our church life, some of these are a flow out of the Christian community, but I really want you to ask yourself the question, are you fighting over the wrong things in your life? So let me give you some examples. Uh, number one, worship styles. Have you ever heard of churches that will disagree or fight over worship styles? Uh, you know, contemporary versus traditional, loud versus soft. I mean, whole churches are divide over that issue, right? And it's not just that we like it one way or like it another way, it's that anyone who doesn't agree with us is unspiritual. You know, the one side is like, oh, this new rock and roll stuff, it's so shallow, you just sing the same, same line over 18 times, you know? I can't believe how shallow it is. And it's so loud, hurts my ears. Since when, you think God can't hear you or something? Yeah, that's one side. Here's the other side. I can't believe that you sing those hymns. It's like, man, they didn't come up to the 1700s, 1800s. It's kind of like late on the scene. And like you're 300 years behind culture. How do you expect to impact your culture singing music like that? Right? And so we fight and divide. And we put labels on each other, spiritual, non-spiritual, based on our musical tastes. Um, clothing. Like what's appropriate to wear on the stage? Like, like is our suits more spiritual? Or, or is like Brent closer to God because he's got the Jesus shoes on today? Yeah, like, okay, essential or non-essential? See? Oh, how about this one? Brent's hair. You know how many cards he's got about his hair? <laughs> Poor guy, you know, essential or non-essential. Um, here's, here's one, lifestyle issues. Now, if you're a new Christian, you won't have seen this quite as much, but if you've been a Christian a while, you've seen this over, over your life. Uh, things like drinking, alcohol or non-alcohol, uh, dancing, 
Should Christians dance or not dance? Uh, TV and movies, is it okay for a, 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 a Christian to go to the movies? If so, what ratings, you know? Um, holidays, uh, should Christians celebrate Christmas? You know, it was originally Saturnalia. You know, this pagan, is that okay? You know, um, Easter, oh, oh, here's what, Halloween. Ooh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we can do a fall festival, we can't do Halloween. You know, just give me the candy. Either way, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> that is, we'll talk about essential versus non-essential. That is the essential issue, the candy. <laughs> now, now, here's what I want you to catch. Is in the church of God, here's what we do. The people that say you can't do Halloween, we're like, can't believe they're so uptight over that. That's just like them. The people who do hold to Halloween, it's like, I can't believe that they would celebrate the devil's holiday, you see? And we will fight over this thing, and then we wonder why people don't wanna join the church of Jesus. Did you ever think that they might not wanna be a part of something that has focused on such insignificant things as this, that fight over these kinds of things? Do you ever think that people might wanna be a part of something great like saving the world? like changing the world. You know, other things that we we talk about, secondary doctrinal things, I'm not talking about core things here, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, I'm not talking about those, I'm talking secondary things that Christians will fight over. Predestination versus free will. The second coming of Jesus, before, after, mid, I don't know. Um, You know, the best way to evangelize, door to door or, well, seeker friendly, a spiritual disciplines for everybody, for some people. Um, missions, well should missions be, every church needs to give 10% of their income directly. You know, if they're not, they're out of God's will. Or, oh no, everyone needs to let God lead people as, as the Holy Spirit leads them individually. You see what I'm saying? We could go on and on and on. And the history of the church is torn up by stuff like this. And here's what I'm saying, men and women, if we don't get this, we will never have a unified church if we don't are clear on what's essential and what isn't essential, and that it's okay to disagree. We don't have to agree on everything. Number two, the second thing I want you to catch out of this passage is that it's okay to be wrong. You know, sometimes we feel like we have to straighten everyone out today. You know? I mean, all we have is today, 24 hours to get it right. Let me ask a question. Have you ever changed, since you've become a Christian, have you ever changed your mind on any significant spiritual issue or since you've become, let me see, your hand. Any, oh, wow. Boy, I'm glad you got it right before you got to Rocky Peak because I could not deal with you back then. You know? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't wait till we all get everything right before we come into his kingdom? You know, and he says, what did we just read? Accept one another as Jesus has accepted you. He accepted you when you were messed up. Why can't we accept one another? Paul said there is a right answer, there is a wrong answer, but he didn't say to all the vegetarians, now listen, get it right, and I mean today. He said, you know, it's okay. It's not clear to you yet. You'll figure it out, you know. Let's just love one another in the meantime. He gave grace to be wrong. What a great, don't you want to be part of a community where you have the freedom to be wrong on non-essentials? 
It's okay, it's okay to be wrong. God will show us in time. He'll give us more wisdom in time. The third observation, third principle, is that getting along is more important than getting it right. When it comes to non-essentials, I'm talking about. I heard a story years ago that's always stuck with me. It's about, it's a, it's a true story. It's, it's about two very famous pastors in our country. You would know them. Most of you would know the names right off the bat. They're, they're radio personalities. And there was one man who served as the executive pastor, the right hand, to both of them for several years, you know, in the different ministries. He was once asked, so what's it like working for these two great, you know, leaders? And, and what's the difference? And here's what he said. He said, well, pastor number A, letter A, um, his goal in life is to be right on everything. Pastor number B, his goal in life is to be good. I'll tell you what, that's right to my heart. That's the message of the New Testament. God is calling us to be good instead of right. That's what this passage is saying. He says, you know what? You know what, he says, some of you are so uptight and you want everyone to get everything exactly right and in the process you're hurting one another and you are so wrong by your hurting one another and that's such a bigger issue than being right on the issue you're about. You see what I'm saying? What he's saying is it's a greater sin not to love one another than it is to let each other be wrong. He said our priority needs to be to build each other up. Let them eat vegetables. Who cares, they'll live longer. You know, when you go to their house, you know, eat the carrot sticks. It's okay. Just love them. It's more important to love them than to straighten them out why you should be having barbecued chicken right now. Okay, Okay, so so the first thing we have to do if we're going to be united as a church, so we have to say what we're going to fight over about, what we're not going to fight about. The second thing we have to do if we're going to be united as a church is we have to learn to do conflict well. Now, we don't have a lot of time to develop this, but I want to at least stick my toe in the pond and begin to stir things up for the future. Um, The emphasis there is on the word learn. Um, Conflict, to learn to do conflict well is one of the hardest lessons in life. I'm convinced of this. Can I give you, let me give you five different ways I'm gonna do this real quick, but five different ways we normally respond to conflict just naturally, and they're all unhealthy, okay? Let me give them to you. Number one is we attack. Now, you'll do it one of these five ways or some combination. Some of you won't, you know, it's not like you do all five. But some of we go on the attack. We're gonna win at all costs. Number two, we ignore it. Yeah, I know there's a problem, but I'm just not gonna deal with it. Maybe it'll get better on its own. Number three, we pretend. Mm, oh no, I'm not upset with them. Oh no, I'm fine. <laughs> Number four, we withdraw. Nah, I'm not gonna go, I'm just dropping out of that group, I'm dropping out of that ministry, I'm dropping out of that church. We, we don't address it, we just withdraw. And number five, we manipulate. We become deceitful to get our way, to do an end run. Those are five examples of how we naturally do conflict that we cannot do if we're gonna have unity in the body of Christ. Uh, last year, I read a book that I really liked. It was called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. 
It's a secular book by a business guy named Patrick Lencioni. He's a consultant. And, uh, and then I saw a DVD of him teaching at, at Willow Creek. He's, uh, he, he normally teaches to business audiences. It's a very, been a very popular book in the business world. Uh, but in this particular case, he was teaching a group of Christian leaders at Willow Creek. And he was talking about how hard it is to learn how to do conflict well, even for the leaders of huge companies, and this is who he's consulting with, and yet how important and vital it is. It's a very powerful clip. It's really stuck with me. I want us to watch. It's like three minutes, 40 seconds. With an executive, a famous executive again, who was the CEO of a company and the president and chief operating officer too. He had all those titles. And he was frankly tired of being the president and chief operating officer because he liked strategy and vision and liked to give talks and marketing. He didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day operations, so he said, I'm going to hire a chief operating officer and a president. So after a while, he was looking for this person. One of his, his direct reports, who I will call Fred, who was not very well liked by his peers, Fred started to tell everyone on the team, I'm going to be the next president. So people were pretty upset about this and concerned. And finally, one brave soul went to this famous CEO and said, excuse me, uh, I have a question. Is Fred going to be the next president? And the CEO said, no, 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 no. no." He said, OK, second question. Did you know he was telling everybody that? The CEO said, I had no idea. Third question, one more. Are you going to tell him to stop? And this is what he said verbatim. And I hear this all the time from CEOs. Oh, I don't have the time and the energy for that. You know, I got a lot on my plate. I don't have the time and the energy to deal with stuff like that. I don't know about you, but hey, Fred, yeah, it's a CEO. No, you're not going to be the next president. Yeah, you're kind of ticking me off that you're telling everybody that. Something bad's going to happen to you if you don't stop, buddy. Yeah, have a good day. Bye bye. <laughs> what was that, like eight seconds? Kind of energizing, in fact. You know, he's not, he's tired. But they don't do that. Well, you know, here's one that happened to me years ago. I was working in an organization. I was reporting to the CEO of a company. I was in charge of leadership development and communication. And I had my annual budget review with the CFO. And for those CFOs are out here, and I know I've met a few of you, um, this guy was your prototypical curmudgeon CFO, not like you guys. (laughs) And so, but anyway, so I went into the meeting. He was a very outspoken guy. He said to me right off the bat, he said, Pat, before we get started, I just want to tell you, if it were up to me, I'd fire you and your entire staff and put the savings to the bottom line because I think the work you do is silly. So it was a California company, so I thanked him for sharing. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, Fred, they're always named Fred, apologies to Fred's out there. I said, Fred, this is a problem. You've got to talk to the CEO about this because these are his programs. And for you, the second or third most influential person in the company to be publicly deriding them and, and criticizing them is like flushing our money down the drain. You should talk to him about this and have this out. He said, I'm not going to talk to him. I said, OK, then I am. He goes, fine. Next day, knocked on the CEO's door. I said, Mark, I talked with Fred yesterday, and he thinks all this stuff I'm doing for you is stupid. And he goes, oh, that's just Fred. I said, no, 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 no. This is a problem. You know. Because he's pretty outspoken about it, and you guys really need to work this out. I mean, they set this 5,000-person company, they sat next door to each other, this much plaster and wood. All you had to do was walk around there and talk to him. He said, you know, Pat, I don't have that kind of time and energy, essentially. I got Wall Street to worry about. I got bigger things on my plate. What do you notice about both of those examples? It wasn't holding people accountable for their numbers. I mean, even though the 
slightly wussy CEOs will do that. I mean, you know, it's like the numbers are the numbers. It's holding people accountable for their behaviors. Oh, we don't like to do that. In fact, I would say that most of the leaders I work with would rather wait till somebody's numbers fail so they can do it in a quantitative fashion. I don't know what's wrong. I just see your numbers are going bad. Then actually enter the danger with them ahead of time and say, the way you're treating your people, it's not going to work. Or I've noticed the way you're organizing your work, ah, you're going to fail. As leaders, we have to have the courage, the courage to enter the danger with people. Isn't that good? Yeah, and it's true. It's not just for leaders. It's for the body of Christ. It's for all of us. So we have to learn to do conflict better. And this is so important because conflict is normal. You know, lots of times we think when we become a Christian, we, we, we first come in the body of Christ. And this is going to be so great. You know, we're all going to get along. We all have Jesus. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all are under the word of God. Isn't it going to be great? We're all going to get along. And then we join a church. You know, the New Testament, it assumes that we're going to have major conflict. Did, did you know that? that the, think back to the passage we started the day with, back in Ephesians 4. He said we're to bear with one another. Remember how you underline that? Bear with one another. Now let me ask you, who do you have to bear with? You bear with people who bug you, right? If, if you just totally like somebody, you have to bear with them. I'd like you to bear with Frank. You're gonna really hit it off. He's a great guy, super generous, always got your back, man of integrity. You're gonna love him. Could you bear with him? It's like, huh? No, no, you bear with people who bug you. And Paul says, okay, this is what it's gonna take. If we're gonna have unity, you're gonna have to bear with one another. You're gonna have to work hard at this to maintain the unity. In fact, he says, you're gonna have to make forgiveness a way of life. You're gonna have to forgive one another. And so if we're gonna to learn to do community well, we're gonna to learn to do unity well here, we're gonna to have to learn to do conflict better. We're not gonna be able, to, we have to step back from attacking and ignoring and pretending and withdrawing and manipulating and we need to learn to move towards conflict but not to attack. We move forward with kindness and clarity and we learn how to put issues on the table, and we learn how to resolve them. It's one of the hardest lessons in life to do, but it's one of my top commitments here at Rocky Peak, that we would be a church who learns how to do conflict well. We become a training center of people who, who know how to do conflict well in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our church. Now let me talk to you for just a second about Rocky Peak and where, where we are in our history. This church has been through some significant conflict the last couple years. It's not something I talk about a lot up here because I don't really want to dwell on the past. I want to move forward. But you know, sometimes you have to revisit the past and solve some things before you can move forward. Some of you have come to Rocky Peak more recently and you've not really been part of that conflict and, and that's great. If you could just hold on to your seats and just listen and kind of prepare for the future conflict in your life. Because <laughs> it'll come. But if you're here and you know what I'm talking about, you know this elephant in the room here that we have, right? It's, it is a major conflict over the previous leadership here 
the things that went on. And here's what I'm telling you, is that we cannot move forward as a congregation until we put this to bed and we let go and we move on. And and let me tell you what it's gonna take to do that. For some of you, it's going to be to take some real courage to admit that the way you dealt with the conflict was not the right way. That you did these five things, maybe you attacked or you withdrew or you pretended or whatever. For, for others of us, um, and so, so what you're gonna do, you're need, going to need to admit the truth about yourself, that you did not maintain the unity of this body. And there were people that you slandered or people that you spoke against or whatever, and you, if you're gonna be serious about following Jesus, you're gonna need to go to those people and say, I'm sorry, I did this wrong. Will you forgive me? That's what unity takes. For others of you, you weren't maybe part of the things. Maybe you weren't on one side or the other side or whatever. But there's just a bitterness in your heart still that you, you've not forgiven some people for hurts that they were done to you or said to you. And Paul would come and say that we have to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, Jesus was very clear about this. He said that if we do not forgive those who hurt us, that he will not forgive us. It's very clear, he said it multiple times. That forgiveness for a Christian is a non-negotiable, okay? There's others of you here, maybe you weren't involved even the whole thing, but you've just been hurt through this. There's a sense of loss, right, wrong, or otherwise, there's a sense of loss when there's a change. It's not that you don't like what's happening now, it's not that you don't like me, it's just there's a sense of loss. A broken dream a broken heart, so one you love is not here anymore. And I just wanna say I understand that, I think God understands that. But there comes a time as a body, we need to say, you know what? It's, if we're gonna be united, we have to repent, we have to forgive, we have to let go, and we have to move on. And I just wanted to talk to you today from my heart. I wasn't gonna do this, Yesterday morning, woke up in the middle of the night, and this came to me, that we're talking about unity. I had no plans of doing this. But I just felt like I need to talk to you from the heart and call you to repentance, call you to forgiveness, call you to letting go according to your need. Jan Roper emailed me this week and said, Mike, I'm gonna be doing a song this week. She said, feel free to share with it as much or as little as you want, but... She said it's a song about, I wrote, um, about God's faithfulness to this church the last two years. And she said it's in first person. It talks about his faithfulness to me, but she said it's really a song about the congregation. I just put it because I'm part of the congregation. And as I was thinking about it yesterday, I thought what a great song to end with. That's why we did the offering early. We don't break the mood. We're here in the place. We're here in the presence of God. It's the family of God. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. As Jan sings this song, I'm going to give you some options. For some of you, you're right where you need to be. Your business with God is done. So just pray for the congregation during this song. For some of you, there's someone you need to forgive. Maybe they're in this room. And you need to let it go. And you need to maybe get up out of your chair during the song. It's fine with me. And go to them and just say, I want to forgive. I want to move on. For some of you, you may need to repent. If you want to come forward during this song and just bow here before the Lord as a 
position, a point in time to nail a stake down and say, today's the day I'm making a decision to move on. Then, then come forward during the song and just pray, you and God. For some of you, there might be someone here that you need to repent. You might need to repent, but the person's not even here. Well, this week would be a good time to do that. And Jesus was so clear. He said, don't bring your sacrifice to the altar to worship God if there's something between you and your brother that's unresolved. And so, here's my challenge. If we're gonna go on this journey together, we need to go as one. We need everyone at the oar. We need to all be pulling. We need to all be listening to the Spirit. We need to all be obeying. We need to all be forgiving. We can't go in part. We can't have one side of the boat rowing, the other side kicking back, you see. So today is a call to unity. Jesus said it was the top priority. The world would know that Jesus is Lord at Rocky Peak because they are one. And so as the song is being sung, you do what you need to do during this song. Come forward, stay in your seat, go to someone, make a resolution that lists the names that you're gonna go to this week. But whatever God puts on your heart, I'm simply asking you as your pastor, as your spiritual shepherd, to act in response to the Spirit's leading in your life so that we can be healed and move on as a body.